Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is a great night for the forum tonight. We have Dr. Mara back after um, two years ago. He was here before, and this time we have had the help, Profide, and we've had the help of Profide et Ecclesia to bring him back again on a very tight schedule. I don't know how he does it, actually. Last night he was speaking in Nottingham. Tonight he's back here with us. And you've all read your newsletter, I hope, because I'm not going to repeat it, only to say that what a great thrill it is to come here. Anybody else speaking on this subject, to be quite frank, I think I would have thought, well, I'll give it a miss tonight, cults and all that. But uh, Dr. Mara speaking on anything is welcome here, and I'm delighted to be with him. As usual, we will have the talk and then afterwards you will be free to um, ask questions or uh, even make contributions if you would kindly be patient when you have to ask a question or if you are going to make a contribution wait until you get the microphone to you because you are going to be put on tape and we are very keen to preserve the quality of the CV Productions tapes. No doubt many of you have sampled them. Thank God, and this is a, an apostolate in which we are able to spread the, the word far beyond these four walls. And Dr. Meyer will be speaking to us tonight, but after tonight, through the CV Productions tapes, he will be speaking far and wide. We are very grateful to have him here, and we welcome him. Thank you, Dr. Mara. Thank you, John. Dear friends of Profidi and dear friends in Christ, I'm very pleased to be back in England, and I'm very pleased the sun has come out again. Every once in a while, I like to be reassured. My topic is ominous. It's called Cults and Genuine Religious Orders, but I want to distinguish two ways to discuss the topic. One is journalistic, which I am not. If I were a journalist, I would have investigated the different Hindu sects. I would have investigated the Munis. I would have gone into depth to show how youngsters are kidnapped and programmed and so on. And this is very interesting, and it gets you nervous. Uh, uh, I don't know if John has this tape, John Edwards of CV Productions, but there is a woman in America who had been in a Hindu cult for 20 years, and she gave a talk on tape, which is one of the most frightening talks I've ever seen, I've ever heard, and it would do well uh, for people to be acquainted with that. This is not a minor problem all over America, at least, and I suspect all over Western civilization. Youngsters from good families, male and female, are being, in a sense, abducted, and they're being in certain compounds. They're not held with chains, with physical chains, but they're held with some sort of psychological chain. Now, I am not here to detail all that. That is the journalistic aspect, and people are far more gifted than I and far more courageous than I. I, for one, will not infiltrate a cult to see what goes on in their initiation. But I found there's a second aspect to cults which almost no one discusses, and that is my area of familiarity. You could call it philosophical, that sounds too high class, 
But what I want to do is, I want to show you what really constitutes a cult, as opposed to a genuine religious order. And when you make the difference, you save yourself an awful lot of trouble. So this is what I propose to do. That uh, Here's the way I outline my, uh, my talk tonight. In general, any time there is a controversy, whether in sex education in, or things of that nature, you always have to distinguish genuine from counterfeit. Because there is a genuine education in chastity, for example, which no one should oppose. There's also this filthy sex education, which everyone should oppose. And when parents fight it, because they're not clear about the two categories, they are neutralized. So, too, there is a genuine meaning to cult, which is fearful. And if a youngster of yours is caught by a cult, you have every right to worry, you have every right to resist. But there is also a religious order. A youngster of yours may decide to be a Benedictine, a Jesuit, a, a member of a religious order, and it may seem superficially that these religious orders do not differ from cults. And therefore, if you don't make the distinction, two things happen. On the one hand, if you like religious orders, if you think the Franciscans, the Benedictines, the Jesuits, at least in their ideal state, are good, well then, when your youngster is kidnapped by a cult, I use the word kidnapped in quotes, the cult is going to get all the favorable publicity. They're going to simply say, well, we do nothing different from, from the Franciscans, the Benedictines, and so on. And that's no good. Why should they get a free ride? Why should something which really harms youngsters, and is very worrisome, why should this suddenly become exonerated because it's confused with religious orders? And on the same, and the opposite side of the coin, if you know how bad these cults are, well then, if your youngster joins a happy, good religious order, you may oppose the youngster. You may say, how terrible, his mind has become psychologically deranged, he is under enormous pressure, he's joining this, this, this cult. So this is the theme of the point tonight. Uh, I don't know how things are in, in England, as I say, but I'll just give you a little sketch of what happens in America. This probably happens... 20, 30,000 times a year. There are all sorts of private detectives trying to get children back. And when I say children, I, I mean adolescents, 14 and older. And what happens is this. Uh, you have a 14-year-old boy or girl studying at school, moody, and one summer they go away to camp or they read some literature or they have a friend and you never see them again. You never see them again, and you try to snatch them away. And sometimes it happens that the parents hire detectives, and they see the youngster walking, and they push him in the car, and then they take him to a secret rendezvous, and they try to deprogram him, because the youngster sometimes has glazed eyes. No, 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 I, I want to follow my guru. I want to follow my leader. And the parents plead with him, and the parents take them to psychologists, priests, all kinds of, uh, sometimes I think, witch doctors trying to deprogram the youngster, and very often the youngster won't be deprogrammed. Sometimes the parents are sued by the cult. 
Let me give you two examples of these cults, by the way. The one example in America, which is the most worrisome, are the Moonies. They follow this Korean sun, young moon. And that you find them on street corners selling candy bars to support uh, the cult. And then there are certain Hindu cults, and there are certain cults without a name. They're cults of personalities. Youngsters are attracted by this man or this woman, this savior of the world. So very often, the parents will try and snatch the youngster back, and there'll be a lawsuit. And you know what the lawsuit is? On the one hand, the parents say, that's my minor child. Sometimes the child is not that minor. could be 18 or 19. On the other hand, the cult says, we have freedom of religion. We believe in this wonderful God, and they'll give you some oriental name. And who are you to interfere with the free practice of religion of your youngsters? So this has actually gone to court many times that we know of, and who knows how many times we don't know of. And as I say, the confusion is reducible to this. This is what uh, caused me to think of this topic. I meet worrisome parents, and they say, oh, I lost two of my children, and they won't come home. They won't phone me. They hate me. Uh, and, and, and I say, oh, how terrible it is. But then I say, wait a minute. I just read the story of St. Clare of Assisi, one of the most marvelous Catholic saints. She was alleged to be the most beautiful girl in Assisi, golden hair. St. Francis looked like a, ragab a vagabond. He had stripped off the wealth of his father, put on a coarse tunic, and he went around Assisi preaching Jesus Christ. And he had a few followers at first, but most people thought he was mad. Now, this beautiful Claire sees St. Francis. In those days, he was not called St. Francis. You could have called him a lunatic, Francis, because he, he sounded mad. He is this happy troubadour of God. And at midnight, according to the account I read, one midnight, Claire shows up in the church of St. Mary of the Angels. And she showed up with a few women companions. This was not an impure rendezvous, I should hope. But she shows up with her trusted friends. St. Francis shaves off the golden locks of her hair, puts a coarse tunic over her, and she becomes the founder of the poor Clarice. Now, her parents were furious. I don't know if they had private detectives in those days, or I don't know if they had psychologists deprogramming people, but they had the equipment. All, all, the, all the relatives thundered out. They went, where is that girl? You've kidnapped her. How dare you do this? And they had all kinds of pressure on the bishop. All kinds of pressure on Francis because this, this ragamuffin, this vagabond, this uncapped uh, uh, street uh, uh, urchin has kidnapped and has, has hypnotized the beautiful Claire. Now we know differently. St. Francis is one of the greatest saints of all time. And Claire, St. Claire of Assisi, founded one of the most solid religious orders. She has given immense glory to God. And in retrospect, we should have been ashamed to have opposed her entrance into this monastery. And we in no way should identify cults with this marvelous following of Brother Francis. And so too with all the great religious orders, many a youngster has become a monk or a nun, against the wishes or even knowledge of their parents. 
So let us not let us not confuse the two. And this is my whole urgent message tonight. It seems it seems as if it's not that important. It's important for the reasons I mentioned, so that the cults don't get a free ride, and so that the good re- religious orders don't don't uh, get the bad uh, report of the cults. It's also important because if we understand real religious orders, we will understand why the church is collapsing today. Very few communities of religious have understood their own mission. They have repudiated the real meaning of a religious order, and of course, they have to resort to all kinds of psychological gimmicks, and it becomes increasingly more difficult to distinguish a a cult from a religious order which has gone crazy with its psychiatry, its group sensitivity session, and its stupidity, and and its circus, its silliness. What I want to do is, first of all, see what is common between serious religious orders, and I want to give two examples which I think are safe. Mother Teresa, thank God, is among uh, the few living founders of a religious order, and her religious order is superb. I have only one daughter, and if my daughter told me she was joining Mother Teresa, I would give her a godsend, I would say, bless you. That's one of the best things that could ever happen, coming under the influence of this saintly, intelligent person who does not uh, stoop to silliness. Also, certain Carmelites are good, for at least for women. The Carmelites, thanks be to God, are not directed from the top. They don't have a military, monolithic organization like the Jesuits. So even though some Carmels are bad, some are superb. So therefore, those would be my examples of good religious orders. And I'm going to ask myself, what is there in common between a good religious order and a cult? A Muni cult, a Hindu cult, one of these youth cults, one of these uh, Maharisha cults which are proliferating. And I will give you a few points which are common. And then I'll give the differences. On the one hand, they appeal to something higher than yourself. You probably sense this. Our youth today have been spoiled blind. Not made happy. The difference between the two. But everything is handed to them. There's a permissive society, permissive family, horrible entertainment. And and they've been flattered with this nonsense that nothing counts unless it turns them on. This whole thing is, well, I mean, if I get something out of it, I might condescend to do this or that. But they want religion on their own terms, or at least so we've been led to believe. They come to a cult, or they come to a religious order, and finally, they recognize there's something more important than themselves. They get on their knees before the leader. They get on their knees before the abbot, or before Mother Teresa, and ask to be admitted into the organization. So that's one mark. There's an appeal to something higher than self, which is very attractive. Our liturgists, our psychologists have convinced most Catholics that everything has to be democratic. Nobody ain't no better than nobody else. That's the general principle of modern religion. The cults know better. And, of course, the religious orders know better. There is a hierarchy of importance, and it belongs to human nature to look up, to want something higher than itself. I even think that's one of the reasons your monarchy survives. 
that our president, we call him Ron. We say, hi, Ron. And, and, and he's just like everyone else. He's got to dress like us. And, and we, we, he's just like, we voted him in. Whereas when you, when the queen passes by, she doesn't have all that much power. But it appeals to something in human nature that, that at least in the state even, which is not the supreme society, but it's a very important society, in the state there's already some majesty and grandeur. And that's why we should rejoice when the hierarchy of the church is present. Instead of dressing the French bishops dressed like me, with a little beret on their top, I'm just I'm a buddy. Wait a minute, we don't want that. We want to be in the presence of a Lord, of an apostle. So the cults already understand this, that they're appealing to something higher than the self. And this, and it then follows, secondly, they demand sacrifices of the postulants. You don't just walk in and dictate what you're going to do and how you feel like doing it. No. Sacrifice of time and energy and humiliations are demanded of you. These poor monies will stay on a street corner for 12 hours, six days a week, selling flowers or candy, and they better come back with the money. And they better come back with recruits every so often. And so too, in a serious religious order, the postulancy can be very severe and humiliating. And one is given to, to very tiresome tasks and very menial tasks. Thirdly, there is a sense of mission which youth desperately needs, and I dare say we all need it. Most people are drifting. Their only mission is to survive until the weekend. And then at the weekend, they drug themselves with entertainment, and it goes through the week again. But how important it is, especially for a young person with some sort of ideal, to be told you're important. There's a job to be done. You, you fit into the job. You can serve Christ in the case of a religious order or in the case of a cult. You can serve the cause of peace or something like that. And that would be another mark that this, there's a sense of service to others. All of these things which the old religious orders always had, the cults have, that you, by negating yourself, sacrificing yourself, you can be of service to mankind. They love these grandiose goals. Service to your fellow men, bring peace, harmony, and so on to your fellow men. Or in the case of some cults, to, to oppose this radical political movement and to oppose that terrible socialistic movement. You can do it. And finally, this does not exhaust it, but this suffices for my common goal they, these cults, and also the religious orders, when they're right, give you a sense of solidarity with your brother and with your sister. You, most of us, as I think we all agree, we live like atoms. We, st we, we share the same flat with someone, but that doesn't always happen. When the kids are 18, they run off to their own flat. and Nobody lives with anybody. Nobody shares thoughts with anybody. Whereas when you're in a cult or a real religious order, you have a brother, you have a comrade. You have this sense of unity, community, which is desperately needed, above all, by you. Because it is orientated toward this common goal. They all go together. Sacrifice, looking up, hardship, service, solidarity, common goal. They all go together. I now want to note, though, the three, three big differences between cults and genuine religious orders and they are as follows. The way 
they get members. The way, above all, young people are attracted into each. It's a crucial difference there. Still more basic is something that almost never, no one ever thinks about, that if a religious order lives in the truth and serves God, that's one thing. If a cult lives in falsehood and serves an idol, it's totally different, even though externally they look the same. And I want to emphasize that point. It's almost never brought up. And finally, and this is self-evident, tremendous difference in the consequences for the individual. If you live in the truth, if you're a person, young or old, male or female, who have devoted your life to God in a genuine religious order, you will have hardships and sorrows and disappointments and humiliation, but overall you'll be genuinely at peace. You'll be genuinely happy. And therefore we parents should rejoice if a youngster of ours is in a religious order. If, alas, you, your youngster is the victim of a cult, I don't care how superficially similar it is to a religious order, you will have broken lives, shattered psyche, ruined personalities because they're rooted in deceit and falsehood. And this is why it becomes especially important to distinguish these two things. What I want to do is talk about this attraction that religion and cults have for people, above all young people, but in order to do that, I need a little detour, and I ask you to be a little patient. You might wonder what I'm getting to, but I think it's important. There is a category called the natural explanation for something. And it's a very important category if you are discussing evolution, by the way. But the big question is, given that some event happens, I don't care what the event is. It could be in your automobile. It could, your radiator bursts. It could be during the wintertime, your block freezes, you've got a big crack in the engine block. Uh, it could be in the behavior of your child. He was a happy child and trusting, and all of a sudden he has glazed eyes. Or all of a sudden he pays no attention to you, and he has to be there. These are events that happen in the world. And I ask us, I want to ask the question, what do you mean when you say there's a natural as opposed to a supernatural? or preternatural explanation for an event. And I want to start with something easy, and I'm going to work up to this difficult problem of, uh, of what explains the attraction that certain religious orders and cults have for young people. The typical sequence will be this. You forgot to put antifreeze in your car radiator. And I don't know how bad England gets, but I'll bet every once in a while you get a good freeze in the wintertime from Siberia. And you wake up one morning and the car won't start and you open up the hood and there's the engine block uh, broken. You say, why did it happen? Uh, did my neighbor give me the evil eye? Is that the explanation? That, is she praying against me, the way Dickens would say about one of these? Ones? No, no. It, it, it belongs to the nature of water, not antifreeze, but water, that when it freezes, it expands. So the natural explanation for your destroyed engine block, at a tremendous loss to you, is the nature of water. So too, I cut my finger, it starts bleeding, I put pressure on the finger and I wrap ice around it, and it stops bleeding. Well, there's a natural explanation for that, which 
the medics know. And things like that. There is, and one other thing, and this is uh, the behavioral psychologists act as if this is a deep uh, truth of science. It could be there is a village with ten shops in the village, and normally business is slack. And all of a sudden, the whole street is mobbed, and they're all going into one shop. What is the natural explanation? Well, they've cut prices 30%. You need a psychologist <laughs> to tell you what's going on. That everybody knows you cut the price, you get more people in. So that's a typical way of giving natural explanations of behavior. But now let me give you more, be- more difficult behavior. Every once in a while, you have this behavior among the charismatics that they're sitting down and they look normal. And all of a sudden, they start talking in tongues. And sometimes one alleges they're really talking in a bona fide language, and people allege that if they tape record it and take it to the museum, someone will recognize Arabic or Hebrew or something like that. I'm simply noting the phenomenon. That's one phenomenon. What's the explanation for the fact that this person who has no education, has never been in Aramea, suddenly starts speaking perhaps in Aramaic. Sometimes you have people, gypsies maybe, or, or prophets, or, or seers. Sometimes I think it's easier to find a seer than a typist, by the way. That, or in all these movements, I've been in these movements for 16 years, and everybody's getting visions now, but nobody wants to do any work. But, <laughs> but once in a while, once in a while, these people, these people seem to predict the future, and not just with vague things, they, they see, they, they, I don't care if they look at a crystal ball or whatever they do, but they will give you something specific, which is rather improbable, and a year later, it seems to have come true, and one says that, how explain this apparent ability to prophesy the future on the part of the seer? Now, there are a lot of people hooked on this. And those two things I'm simply going to leave to one side. I do not propose to give the natural explanation for those two things. I have my own theories on that, whether there are natural explanations or not. But what I'm wondering is this. My third point is this. You will see hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people who at one time struck you as normal, Youngsters, happy-go-lucky, the obvious problems of youth and adolescence. And all of a sudden, they abandon things and, and follow a leader. And, and they seem different. It's like being in love. Uh, at least love has a natural explanation. It's a beautiful thing. that You can have a listless kid around the house who never brushes his teeth. He looks like a pig. And all of a sudden, he starts dressing up and all that, and he's he's whistling in the morning and all that. Well, there's a girl in his life. Beautiful. There's a beautiful thing. And and then he doesn't want to know anything else. He's just dreaming of the day tonight. I hope they still dream. I hope that's still possible in today's smug world in which no one wants to admit that the opposite sex means anything. This is part of our independence. You can take it or leave it. The girls don't need the men. The men don't need the women. All we need is social security, I guess, and, and all this. But what was, this is the precise point at stake here in, in this problem of what makes people join. Now, you've heard the story, story about British Guyana, Jim Jones, that... 
900 people were so, so uh, absorbed in an admiration, not to say a slavery of Jim Jones, he told them to drink poison, they drank it. They killed themselves and their children and everything else, and that made the headlines for a few weeks. It's totally forgotten now. I mean, after all, nothing can stay in our consciousness in more than two weeks because we have other things moving on. But at least for two weeks, the world was shocked. How, how explain that you give up your home, you give up all your past allegiances, and you follow this ranting leader who, who professes some doctrine and who makes you give up your treasure, your freedom, your children, even your life. So this is this whole point. 